previously in the R2AK Daily Fix by Boldly Went. The R2AK race kicked off on Monday, June 2nd, just as the light of the day washed over Port Townsend at 5 a.m. For me, I can be out on my own for three weeks, don't have to talk to anybody, just do what I want, not have a shave for three weeks, not put on a nice shirt and a pair of pants, so that's another escape. The stage that is frequently the hardest of the whole race is the first stage, which is affectionately referred to as the proving ground. And it's true that many people don't make it past the first 40 miles. So your boat swam here like a penguin. It swam here like a penguin. It did. It stopped and ate three fish on the way and uh, <laughs> caught itself a seagull. They always say that every year is either a sailor's day or a human power day. Yeah. Today was definitely a sailor's day because there are no human powered people who are anywhere in sight. <laughs> <Yeah>, they're, <laughs> right. they're all still camping in Port Townsend, I think. No one knows why the Race to Alaska plays the Soviet national anthem at the start. We'll do our best to find the answer, but no promises. Welcome back to the R2AK Daily Fix by Boldly Went. I'm Angel Mathis, and we're coming to you from our floating studio off the southeastern coast of Vancouver Island. This is a 14-part podcast following the 750-mile Race to Alaska created and produced by Boldly Went Productions. And you're listening to episode two of 14 that chronicles the quest to win $10,000 in a non-motorized, unsupported boat race through the iconic Inside Passage. In the last episode, we talked to some of the first racers to complete stage one of the race across the proving grounds of the Strait of Juan de Fuca. In this episode, we talk to a few of the back of the packers. Before we get to that though, in the last episode, we promised that we would find out why in the world the race kicks off with a playing of the Soviet national anthem. So when we talked to race boss, Daniel Evans, it was one of the first things we asked him. Okay, so important question. Why is the Soviet national anthem played at the start? I mean, it's because it's cool. It's super cool. They're awesome, and it's loud and fantastic. And it was well before all this political turmoil. So it's in any kind of, you know, 2016 election trickery, and we just love it. So we did it once, and it became a tradition. Mm-hmm. I like it. I do like it. It's yeah. long. So it gives yeah. ple- teams plenty of time to leave. Right, well, it's an hour start line, and the race is very long. Mm-hmm. So I might as well give them something to go on. Yeah. yeah. There you have it, folks. Don't give any credit to stories about Putin's interference in the race to Alaska. The race starts with a song of praise to the Soviet Union because, quote, it's cool. I do have to admit that the anthem blaring with dozens of sails moving out into open seas did make for quite the dramatic scene, and a single tear rolled down the cheeks of many looking on in the crowd. In our episodes, we want to give you all the important race updates, but if I'm being honest, I have to admit that the race tracker is more up to date than a podcast will ever be, and that I feel a little bit jealous of that particular part of the webpage. But I just reassure myself that there are things we're doing here together that that little robot tracking asshole can never do. 
Today's episode highlights that because even if the audio will be a few days old by the time you hear this, we'll be sharing a part of the race that normally you can't experience without being here in person, the race community and camaraderie. So in your face, race tracker. The R2AK is its own particular beast. We've read lazy comparisons between the race and the America's Cup. But let's be clear, the presenting sponsor for the 2019 America's Cup is Prada, while at the R2AK, the closest you'll get to anything that fancy is perusing the list of official team names that include obscene jokes and references to flatulence. This is not an apt comparison. If you want to put R2AK in a family of events, you need to think in terms of events that seem to have started out as drunken jokes that escalated. The 300-mile unsupported Everglades Challenge small boat race in Florida is probably a cousin, or more definitely the Kraken Cup, an 800-mile race down the East African coast where participants are required to use traditional sailboats made of dugout mango trunks and bamboo. The R2AK has more in common with the X-Alps race in Europe, where racers traverse the Alps by climbing to the tops of mountains only to jump off the top and paraglide to the next mountain. It's far from a buttoned-up yacht race. R2AK is more cannonball run than Indy 500. I say all of this to illustrate an important point, that R2AK is something both rare and important. It's a real adventure, and many racers we've interviewed have said so. This has turned into an ra- a adventure race, I guess would be a good way to describe it, because it is a race, and at the same time, it's an adventure to get to Alaska without no motor and human propulsion. So there's all these variables to figure out. You know? When we talk to racers, we get a real sense that many people who are taking on this challenge are getting into it without knowing if they'll finish or survive. Important disclaimer though, the race is trying really hard to make sure people don't get themselves killed. And use of location trackers that have demonstrated their inability to withstand the brutal conditions of the race and shut themselves off at inopportune times are just one way. This was understandably a hot topic at the skippers meeting in Victoria. Keep that spot and keep it as dry as possible. Keep that logo horizontal straight up at the sun or the moon or the clouds. And check it frequently for a lot of happy green lights and no red lights. I know some of you need new ones. We'll do that tomorrow. We're recording this episode right after the big racer party in Victoria after stage one, which was a great reminder that the magic of the R2AK is that it's real adventure done in community. Any old fool can float to Alaska in a bathtub, and some here do seem to be trying this, but there's something special that happens in doing it with a hundred of your closest friends. There's a kind of camaraderie and kinship that can only be developed through shared, ill-advised, pointless suffering. The party in Victoria already had racers sharing tales of failure and success, swamped boats and intense fear, and it was great to be on hand to watch lifelong bonds forming as racers become a part of the R2AK community. Nobody experienced the suffering or the community in the race more intensely than the teams on small craft during stage one of the race across the Strait of Juan de Fuca. Persistent high winds and lumpy water meant that if you were in a small craft, the only way to get across within the 36-hour time cutoffs for the stage were to push through a washing machine 
and risk your boat and your dignity, if not your life. We spent some time lurking around the dock in Victoria so we could catch some of these racers as they were still feeling the emotions of the experience. We managed to catch Doug Shoup of Team Perseverance shortly after he managed to complete the crossing. Okay, so we are here with Team Perseverance. What's your name? Doug Shoup. And Doug, today you made it in from the Proving Ground to Victoria, BC, and you just showed us this part of your boat that looks to me like it broke in half. Can you tell us about what that is and what that part is and how that happened? My centerboard broke, snapped off. I was riding across about a mile and a half from Victoria and wind was blowing pretty hard and got hit pretty solid with a wave from the side and heard a big crack. I started looking around, checked my Amazonakas, make sure nothing there was broken and then looked down to my side and there's the end of my dagger board sticking up alongside of the boat. The next wave it went under and that was the last time I saw it. So you're, you actually lost a part of your boat? Yes, I did. How important is that part of your boat? It's very important uh, if, you're, if you're trying to tack. It helps keep you going straight in the water. So tell us, because people who are listening can't see your boat, I can see that it's made from wood and it's very low to the ground. It has two oars and two masts for sails. So tell us about how that feels when you're rowing across the Strait of Juan de Fuca in this. Well, I got lucky today. I didn't have to row very much. Today was pretty much all sailing. Uh, yesterday, going over to Dungeness was a lot of rowing, and it's tiring. And I don't much care for facing backwards, especially when you're in any kind of seas. I don't like to see what's coming at me. One of the questions that we're asking people today is, what does it mean to you to be in this race? And what brought you to this crazy adventure? As far as the crazy adventure, it was something I heard about probably a year and a half ago, a little over that, in a conversation with, with my employer. And she mentioned a race to Alaska in a conversation, and my response was, what's that? And she'll say, oh, no. <laughs> a afterwards, I started researching it and was just absolutely intrigued by the race and really loved the challenge and the adventure, and I still have a bell and catch can to, to ring. It's just not going to happen this year. So you're giving up right now? Yeah, I just finished the boat. I was literally finishing the boat up on Friday with the stuff. And I had actually talked to Dan Evans prior to coming over and was to the point of switching boats to one of my tandem islands or my adventure island. And I was approved for it. And then afterwards, I just really felt that I had put so much effort into this that there was no way I wasn't bringing it. So I had a very long day on Friday just going down the list of all the things I had to finish up and got it over here. and. I wanted to do the proving ground, but just didn't feel with my experience on the boat, that'd be prudent to go much further in it. Well, you made it through the proving ground, which is a huge, huge accomplishment. So congratulations on that. How are you feeling about making it here? I'm, I'm glad I made it here. It, it, it was a lot harder than last year's race uh, on the island where we had almost perfect conditions crossing. It was hard. Yesterday was a really hard row and dead end of the wind to get to Dungeness. Stage to come over here this morning and coming across this morning it was pretty chunky out there. It was it was windy, it was rough, and it was pretty pretty bouncy ride coming across. What was the camaraderie like out there last night? Were you with anybody and did you find that you were getting support of other boaters or were you all alone? Oh no, we were all, all the boaters that were on the island were there together and we were helping each other out just with the amount of wind 
that there was last night. I my initial intent was to anchor the boat and sleep on board off of the anchor. And with the winds blowing as hard as they were, I wasn't really comfortable with that. So beach the boat and actually about six of the other racers come down and help lift the boat up above the surf line to get it out and then they helped me relaunch it again this morning. That's nice to hear. I think the other thing I want to hear about is how did you guys, when you were out there, feel? Was there ever a time that you felt like, I don't want to do this, but I'm here and I am in it and I'm going to go for it? No, leaving this morning, the only concern I had was if conditions wouldn't have warranted coming in, and uh, if they didn't, I was going to turn and had just do a straight downwind sail and go back to Port Townsend. The conditions, although they were rough, was good enough. The boat handled it really well, and and there was no point once I got started and in it that I had any intention to turn around and going back or regretted being there. Yeah, thank you so much. That's You're great. Welcome. Really, really good. If you haven't yet, I highly recommend reading Doug's bio on the R2AK website. Just search for Team Perseverance. He's a really inspiring guy who has dedicated his life across the last several years preparing for this race. This was his second valiant, if unsuccessful, effort, and we hope he keeps trying and eventually gets to catch a can. Doug has tried the race previously in a tiny Hobie Adventure Island, and this year was attempting in an 18.75 foot Sailing Angus Row Cruiser. We're bummed it didn't work out, but this guy is what this race is all about. Another team that experienced both the brunt of the challenge and the support of the community was Team Funky Dory a remarkable couple of guys from Maine attempting the race in a 16-foot dory that they found in the bushes near the Columbia River, then were able to find the previous owner and purchase it for, get this, one dollar. It needed quite a bit of work to get it to float, and we talked to them about their experience and about the role that the race community has already played in helping them through this harrowing ordeal. All right, um, so this is a little impromptu interview. I just ran into team Funky Dory at the kind of pre-ruckus <laughs> at R2AK. Um, so could you just tell me what your guys' names are, where you're from? I'm Thor Bell, and I'm from Maine originally. Uh, I'm Pax Templeton, and I'm also from Maine. Okay, so um, describe what are you trying to get to Alaska? Like, what is this thing you're trying to haul to Alaska? It's a Swampscott Dory built in 1978 by David Jackson in Anacortes. Found it in the bushes down on the border with Washington and Oregon, right by the Columbia River. It had been there for about 10 years. Had some pretty serious splits and damage to various little bits here and there. Centerboard was all messed up. And we spent, I think we have around a thousand hours into restoring, modifying, and fixing it now. We've been trying to work with as many people as possible because for two reasons, we're no expert in wooden boats. And the other reason being that the more people involved, the better off the end product, product will be. Okay, so you found it in the bushes. Did it belong to anyone or did you just drag it out? So it belonged to a man off of Craigslist. <laughs> and what did he have it listed for? Two grand? Yeah, no, it was like three and a half. Three and a half. And we basically told him about our mission, how we wanted to use kind of ocean exploration as a way to get people involved in ocean conservation and he ended up giving it to us for a dollar. <laughs> nice, <laughs> so you spent, this is, that's perfect. So dollar boat, one of the things we're talking about is one of the things we love about this race is it's, the idea is it 
anybody can really access it as long as you're smart and savvy and intrepid. So how much do you feel like you spent on this project overall? If we don't include the raise fee, which we're not because we're just doing that on our own. And then we had like a GoFundMe site up that we took three grand out of. And I think we spent maybe a little over that three grand by now, but not by much. Nice. So you guys are you guys are dirtbags, but you clearly have heart. You're, you're doing uh, this for the purpose. Yeah. And people seem to just be nice out there, and uh, have helped us out a lot with just a bunch of things on the boat. Donation. My dad made this Dodger. A lot of people have contributed to make it happen. Do we, you do you ever think that maybe some of those people are kind of pulling a prank on you, trying to get you to take this thing? Down? I don't know. So it's actually a good story in its own right. Emiliano of the Artful Sailor over there, he was working with Brian Toss about 38 years ago, and he and they were sharing a shop in Anacortes, and they built the rig and made the sails to this very boat 38 years ago. So we were able to reach out and talk to them here in Port Townsend, and Emiliano, I found a, got a set of sails donated to me, and he modified them, and then we got another person to donate printing on them and everything, but Emiliano put I don't even know how many hours into into the sale and then brian helped a little bit with rigging and it's been just trying to work with collaboration yes yeah that's a, that's incredible possible. that's incredible and um for people who are listening they can't see this thing obviously so could you just describe it like how long is it what primarily well she's beautiful she's beautiful <laughs> she is yeah a lot of varnish it's 16 feet long a clinker or lapstrake built fur planks with just wood bright work everywhere yeah you told me like um like toothpicks and putty and bubble gum <laughs> is like the primary construction <laughs> yeah so when we got the boat out of the bushes it had chopsticks and spray foam fixing a few of the splits in it um which were no good so we cut those out and glued in some Dutchman's of Alaskan yellow cedar. The wood came from a very affordable place as well. <laughs> I think the first time I went sailing in this, I didn't fix anything and just tried to make it work and water was just pouring in from everywhere. and That was no good. It's definitely been an ambitious project. I think it's been about six months from bush to boat here <laughs> and there's still more things to do. We were also in a car accident like a month ago oh, that Lord. totaled my truck and the centerboard of this went through the back of the truck and like split in half and we had to totally refiberglass that. Both of us are sort of fighting an injury as well and we're just happy to be here. We're just happy to be here. <laughs> that's it. That's the spirit of this event, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is amazing story the boat itself and you were in a, in a wreck what are the things that you're concerned about what are the things you're worried about small ass boat <laughs> <laughs> small ass boat big ass water yeah that's pretty much the primary concern space. i have yeah, space having space for ourselves you know we made it in a way that keeps us safe out there but comfort definitely has had to be sacrificed in some aspects to allow us to bring everything we need to bring yeah, I'm looking. This is maybe a Toyota Corolla's worth of space. <laughs> like, there's not much room in there to sleep, carry stuff. No. no. The beautiful thing is our bags will double as basically sleeping platforms. And because there's so little space, we'll just distribute stuff at night and sort of sleep on top. I don't know. The, the biggest thing for us was just we had felt like we had to do something for the ocean and I've been fixing and working on boats since I was a kid. I think I had my, my first boat was actually another dory when I was 12 years old or something back in Maine and worked on that and just sort of have always been around boats and this is what I know and we're trying to transfer what we know into sort of helping what we care about and that's the ocean because the ocean has a much greater effect on everyone's day-to-day -day lives than they ever realize and 
yeah this is yeah it's awesome it's a great story and people latch on to great stories so it's cool that you're doing this and i think it's gonna get attention um, hope so. to your cause so that's awesome yeah and i Thanks, wish you guys luck man that's thank intrepid you. yeah thank really you appreciate all right it. yeah cheers yeah. Au revoir. <laughs> Pax and Thor are so easy to root for, and those guys have some serious guts. Thor told us at the racer party that he doesn't even like small boats. I'm a little worried that this experience isn't going to help. Just keep swimming, guys. The larger race community is a huge part of this experience for participants, but within teams, another huge part of what this is about is the other people on the boat. We talked with a few guys from one of the most competitive boats in the race, Team Angry Beaver, about this. First up, some thoughts from the team mentor, Mats. Adjusting the question, the question is why is this, why are you sailing with all of these young guys? Yeah, that's actually my, that's my favorite question. So it's gonna be a bit of a long-winded answer, but essentially I moved to Seattle 16 years ago after a few years in the States, right? Came here for work and I, I grew up sailing just, and when I came here and got back to sailing, more normal life, less work, better balance, skiing, sailing, I found this community of young sailors in the 20s and lower 30s that are really, really good dinghy sailors. So, so, so what I did when I was in their age. But what is cool about this community around in the Pacific Northwest, I would say, around Seattle that I'm at, that these folks, they have kind of a natural talent around sailing and, and there are no egos really. So everybody, they have this natural talent and, and really good capabilities, but there are no egos that I've seen elsewhere in the world, even in my home country, Sweden, where I grew up. Even there, you have a little bit of an attitude somewhere, right? But I found this excellent community of folks, really cool folks, and have a very natural way of, of you know, doing sailing and skiing and, and outdoors. And, and I, I really related to that, you know, that, that community and that vibe, so to speak. So I, I started sailing with these guys a fair bit on 505 that I usually sail up here for fun, dinghies, and we ended up sailing keel boats. And I always thought that, hey, what if this young group of people could get access to a big boat and race against the old guys, right, with the money? And, and we had this opportunity to do that thanks to the Skiff Foundation. Long story short, I'm not going to go into that, but this is the second boat. The first one was the Jungle Kitty that did this race with another group of younger, really talented dinghy sailors. And, and so this is a, sort of the second effort in that area. So that, that's the reason why I'm doing that. I think it's really cool, right? So this is not a, a group of rich people, you know, doing some offshore racing. This, this is a group of people that are up and coming. So watch for these guys, the younger guys, not me. <laughs> I'm on my way up, but these younger guys, some of them were really established already, like Matty here, for instance. He's been already on kind of the, the national uh, Olympic sailing level in the US. But some of the other guys haven't, but they, you know, they're up and coming and really capable. So that's kind of the long-winded answer, but something that I'm really passionate about, kind of the, the general sailing and the dinghy and the racing community in the, in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. After speaking with Mats, we checked in with one of the young guys he's talking about, named Matty. You know, what's great about having friends like Mats and everybody on our team is we've all done a, f a lot of sailing individually, and we've also done some sailing together. And, you know, a lot of it comes down to how well you can work with the people that you're surrounded with. And, you know, sometimes, you know, when they, if they feed me coffee, which I never drink coffee, I get a little jumpy. And <laughs> they gave me a triple shot espresso this morning and a little on the edge and pushing people. And they're like, dude, chill out. <laughs> they're like, go downstairs, take a, drink some water and take a breather. And, you know, 
But you know, that's the best part about having friends like that is they don't mind calling you out because they're your friends and we're gonna be stuck together for the next you know, week and a half on this 40 foot island. And uh, we all have to somehow get along with each other so there's not weird animosity for 12 days. What's your specific ways of getting along with each other? Well, we try to keep everything fairly light. There's a lot of jokes being cracked and you know, everybody on board is, can take criticism super well and they can also dish it out. So I think it's, it's a balance of mm-hmm. what you can take and what you can dish out. And you're gonna, on a race like this, or going to Hawaii, or any distance race, you're gonna find the weaknesses in people along the way. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. I look, try to view it as a, a good thing because then you can reorganize everybody into what they're strong at versus what they're not strong at, which, you know, it's so easy to be negative about something. Mm-hmm. So why not be, switch it around and turn a negative into a positive and Mm -hmm. put people where they're better. You might recognize Matt's from episode one of this podcast series. Turns out he's quite the mentor for this team of scrappy up-and-comers. We'll be tracking them because they have a fast boat and a really talented team. From the back of the pack to the front, a thing that makes the race to Alaska so unique is the community here. People who suffer together stay together, and even if there are always competitive juices flowing in a very real way. Racers are all in this together. For some concluding thoughts on this topic, here's a touching comment from Matt's The Angry Beaver. You realize at the end of the day, it's about how do you make others feel? It doesn't matter anything else. Okay, winning feels good, but if that has the cost of making other people feeling bad, you know, and if that, that, that's a bad thing. That's sort of my personal or subjective conclusion after the doing That's it for today's R2AK Daily Fix by Boldly Went. So who are the people that feel driven to compete in the race to Alaska? And why are they doing it? Who are they racing against? And is $10,000 important? We'll talk about that and give you a glimpse into the minds of these adventurous souls in the next episode, June 10th. Thanks for sharing the adventure with us. Huge thanks to Race to Alaska for bringing this crazy adventure into the world and all the crazy adventurers who are trying it and who are fodder for this podcast. Other thanks for this podcast are attributed to Uncruise Northwest Maritime Center, Doug Shoup from Team Perseverance, Pax and Thor from Funky Dory, Mats and Maddie from Team Angry Beaver, Race Boss Daniel Evans, Michaela Elias, audio editor for this episode, Tim Mathis, co-writer for this episode, episode production by Boldly Went. Also, too, Soviet Russia, High Winds, Supportive Friends, Guys Whose Names Sound Like Superheroes, Making the Cutoffs, and community. If you're still listening, thanks. Get all the daily details about the race to Alaska at r2ak.com. Get additional R2AK content and reporting from our website or link to the regular weekly Boldly Went podcast featuring the brief and true adventure stories by outdoorists of all kinds at boldlywentadventures.com. Follow us both on Instagram and Facebook at Race to Alaska and at Boldly Went Adventures. I'm Angel Mathis, proudly bringing you this podcast from Victoria, BC with the Race to Alaska. 
Ignite your adventure. Thank <laughs> you.